Romans chapter, three, or chapter 12, verse 3. Did I keep saying it the wrong way? Yeah, forgive me. I don't know where we are. Um, Romans chapter 12, verse 3 is where we are, um, and now I am as well. Uh, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders uh, here at Church in the Square, and you'd think by the 101st installment of this series, I'd know where we are in it. Um, but what we've been uh, considering in this most recent uh, chapter as we transition from a number of doctrines uh, in the Christian faith in the first 11 chapters of Romans, we've now shifted into Christian living. And one of the things that we uh, learned from the very outset of this shift in Romans chapter 12 is you've got a new mind. You have a new mind in Christ. The Scriptures really make it clear, too, that it isn't just a new mind generally, but particularly it is the mind of Christ. Paul says that you're a new creation in 1 Corinthians, that the old has gone and the new has come. And that one thing in particular we discovered or rather considered perhaps for the first time or maybe the 1,000th time for you, that amongst that idea of being a new creation in Christ, of being made new, of resurrected, you have a new mind and specifically this new mind uh, in Christ. It means that you think differently. And so Paul told his Romans readers to avoid being conformed by this world, but instead what? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is only possible because you have been given this new mind. And what that means is that when we become followers of Jesus, we're empowered by his spirit to think through this new mind and particularly to understand the mind of God, to understand his will and what he desires. Left to ourselves, Paul, the old self in particular, an old mind, you can't do that. But now with this new mind, you can know, Paul says, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And when we do God's will, what we're doing is fulfilling what verse 1 taught us, to offer your lives as a living sacrifice. We give ourselves to him. That's what the first two chapters, or rather the first two verses of chapter 12 have been all about. Because of God's rich mercy, we give ourselves to Him in a kind of holistic worship. Not just your singing, though you sounded beautiful today. You were on point. Well done. But it's more than that. It's more than your singing voice. And for some of us, we say, thank God that it's not just my singing voice, right? But it's your whole life. Um, sees this particular theme woven, verses 4 and 5, beginning of chapter 12, specifically verses 3 through 8. If we look at verses 4 and 5, we'll learn how to give ourselves to our brothers and sisters because we're members of one body. And in verses 6 through 8, we learn to give ourselves to our ministry or to our calling. But before we do that, before we give ourselves to our brothers and sisters, before we give ourselves to our calling or our ministry, we need to understand ourselves appropriately. In a manner of speaking, then, we learn to give ourselves to ourselves. And I'd like to try to make a case for the next few moments to say that that doesn't sound as crazy as maybe as originally you hear it, that we give ourselves to ourselves. It's really about understanding who you are. And I wonder if you have come across a more prevailing idea in our day than discerning and knowing the self, knowing who I am, who in the world am I? I don't care if you're a 13-year-old on the verge of discovering your gifts in high school or a 22-year-old discovering them in college or you're a first-time parent or a first-time city dweller, first time you've had a job, whatever it is, almost always the question in the back of our minds is, who in the world am I, right? I mean, it was what Derek Zoolander asked, the puddle like in the street, right? Who am I? He goes, I don't know. Like, this is something we are all trying to discern, if you don't know Zoolander, the Lord loves you because that was a waste of every single minute. <laughs> <laughs> 
Specifically, I'd like to consider today this ancient Greek axiom, because the reason that we are wrestling with it today, 21st century Chicago, is because all of civilization has always wrestled with this question, is who am I? One of those Greek axioms was simply know thyself. This is one of three primary Delphic maxims, which was about, along with 150 others that were accredited to the god Apollo, along with things like nothing to excess and certainty brings insanity. He said, know thyself. I'd like to think about self-knowledge today through the lens of the gospel. Because I think one of the things that I can be prevalent or, or, or I can habitually do and that I imagine that we can all do is we hear some sort of modern idea or thought that is out in the culture and we either adopt, where's the truth in that, where's the deception in that, what if this is of God's common grace? In other words, how has he been good to all of us by helping us understand this and what is his gospel word in the midst of it? So how do we know ourselves through the lens of the gospel or how do we know ourselves through the work of Christ? Well, according to the Bible, Self-knowledge goes well beyond your Enneagram number, believe it or not. It goes well beyond whatever personality test or spiritual gifts assessment or even your family history. Those things are important and they are helpful, but there is more. Self-knowledge is about knowing grace. Self-knowledge is about knowing grace. Paul tells us here in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. See, in other words, what Paul is saying is grace enables us to think about ourselves rightly. Grace enables you to see yourself accurately. Notice, the word think shows up three times if you're reading the English Standard Version, and that word judgment comes from the same root word as think. It's a fantastic play on words. And it's a direct affront to the prevailing religious sort of cultural idea that Christians aren't supposed to think. Four times in this verse, Paul is like, you need to think. Don't leave your brain behind. You got to think about this. Christians have a new mind. It's controlled by grace. And grace changes the way that we see everything. But Paul is saying, especially how you see yourself. Are too often. My concern, church family, as I've considered this passage today, is far too often you and I think about ourselves and grace is nowhere in the equation. We don't think about ourselves through the lens of grace. We don't think about our brothers and sisters through the lens of grace. We don't think about our calling and our ministry through the lens of grace. And so what Paul is going to begin to do today, and I think it's quite brilliant by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is going to rebuild your self-identity through the work of Christ. This is what he does through the new mind. And so I pray that as we navigate this, a bunch of lies are just going to get blasted in your heart and mind. A bunch of lies you didn't even know you were believing. The Holy Spirit is a Jesus. See, grace empowers us, Paul's going to say, not to think too highly, not to think too lowly, but to think through faith about who we are. Here's how I'd like to organize our time. Thinking too highly about ourselves, thinking too low of ourselves, and then finally thinking with faith about ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, lies are so prevalent in our culture and in religion and in our hearts and minds we don't even know when we're believing one. And so today, would your word expose with its light the truth and beauty of Jesus, thereby exposing the truth and beauty of your creation, your people, your church. I pray for my sisters who are in the midst of battling self-concept, self-identity, self-knowledge things, would you expose the truth and beauty of Jesus to them today? 
I pray for my brothers who are in the middle of the same battle, trying to understand self through many different lenses, but not the the grace of God. Would you confront those lies and replace them with your truth today? And we pray that this would be for your glory, the good of the church, and the good of our neighbors and world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins by speaking about himself. Look at the first part of verse 3. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you. Now, he's saying a lot by you. This is like coded language, if you will. He's saying at least three things when he just says, for the by the grace given to me. He's saying everything that I've just said is about grace. Everything I've just taught you about living as a sacrifice, as, as not being conformed, but being transformed. All of that is by grace. But it's also a statement of his apostleship. This is the way that Paul speaks about his apostleship throughout the scriptures in places like 1 Corinthians 15, Galatians 1, and Ephesians 3. He's constantly saying, for by the grace given to me, I became an apostle. An apostle, just so that we're clear, is one who has been called by God that apostles find and teach the gospel. This is one of the reasons why we don't believe, according to the New Testament, that apostles still exist today, because the gospel has been defined through the scriptures. It need not be defined anymore. There are plenty of teachers, evangelists, prophets, preachers, but there are no more apostles because Paul and others were uniquely called by God to define and communicate the gospel message. And now we've got a threefold move of grace to say now grace serves another purpose in this text. It kind of holds this text together in light of everything he said and in light of his apostleship. He's now going to tell everyone who reads this something and it's all anchored in grace. Grace holds this passage together. So there's grace for the new mind that we have received. There's grace in Paul's apostleship. And there's grace extended to all of his readers with this teaching that he is about to bring to us. Look now as he continues. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, what? Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Grace does that. Church, grace keeps you from thinking too highly of yourself. Paul cautions his readers to not think more highly than they should. And the reason I think that he needs to say this is because it's an easy thing to do, right? This instruction is necessary because there was a habit in the early church, particularly in Rome and in, and in Chicago, to think of ourselves too highly. And so in a word, what, Paul, what is Paul instructing us? Be humble, right? Same thing that Kendrick is trying to teach all of us today. Be humble. Be humble. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, in the first century, honor was esteemed and humility was shamed. This is something very hard for us as we peel back the layers of history to look back on the Greco-Roman Empire. The idea that you and I esteem humility and think it's a good thing for people to pursue no matter what their creed, nationality, culture, or religion, that's foreign to the first century culture of the Greco-Roman world. Humility was seen as weakness. Today, humility is a social value. Historians like Australian John Dixon thinks that this shift from 2,000 years of civilization took place because a singular event happened, namely the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Going back through history, looking, as Dixon explains, at this shift in a social esteem hinges on one particular person, a man from Nazareth who claimed to be God, the highest honor, who also dies, he's crucified for the sake of his people, the greatest humiliation, It's this single event, this story, the death of Christ, in which all of history turns humility from weakness in our social consciousness to strength. This is no small feat. It's hard to change culture. And what historians are teaching us, 
Even those outside of the lens of the Scriptures are like, there's only one thing that makes sense of why we love humility now, even if we can't emulate it, and why we loathe pride and arrogance, and it was the cross of Jesus Christ. See, humility is something that is a deeply Christian virtue. When we look more closely at what Paul is saying, we're not only to see how countercultural it was at the time, but we're to realize how necessary this is for a follower of Jesus. It's not an option. When Paul says more highly than he ought to think, it's a bit misleading. It's not strong enough. What he is saying is you must think this way. So he's not saying it'd be nice if Christians were humble. We vote yes to that. It would be nice if Christians were humble. Can I get an amen? But more than that, what Paul is saying is if you are not humble, you're probably not a Christian. It's with that force. I like suggesting stuff. That, that's, like, that's cool this day and age. But like commanding it and saying unless you inhabit this, we have questions about who your Lord is. That's why he's an apostle. <laughs> right? Commentator Leon Morris explains that Paul sees humility not merely as desirable, but as necessary for the true Christian. Through the power of Jesus, his death and resurrection, Romans 12, 3, is undoing generations of social hubris, setting humility not only as a noble endeavor, but a necessary quality of a follower of Jesus. Now, how in the world is this possible? only by grace. Why? Because grace keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves. Have you ever noticed how much you think about yourself? It's wild. We think about ourselves all the time. Instinctively, naturally, when we're hungry, when we're thirsty, when we're angry, when we're sad, we're feeling ourselves all the time. Like tie always a mindfulness of self. And have you ever noticed how highly you think of yourself? Like tie always goes to the self, right? It always goes to the self. If like all things being equal, I'm going to kind of go in my favor in an argument or in traffic or who is supposed to get on the train first, right? I'm always going to think, I was probably here, and you don't know my story, but I'm definitely the one that needs this more than you, right? So we have this sort of collective consciousness of self. Scottish Bible teacher James Denny explained that to himself, every man is in a sense the most important person in the world. And it's always need, it's, it, it, excuse me, and it always needs much grace to see what other people are and to keep a sense of moral proportion, We think so highly of ourselves that we even need grace to see and think that we think highly of ourselves. Grace actually exposes this. So if you might be sitting there just going, not really, like I'm really humble, like I think about others all the time. I mean, this is the trap, right? (laughs) This is the trap. He who claims to be humble has in that moment revealed their pride, right? Grace exposes this. The closer we get to grace, the more gets exposed in accordance with the Scriptures. The longer you get familiar with grace, you don't get more and more uh, aware of your humility. (laughs) You get more and more things get exposed, and you go, oh, really? That's still there? A few ways I think that grace exposes the way that we think too highly of ourselves. I think grace exposes our dependency. Left to ourselves, we might think we're fairly independent, but grace exposes our dependency We think too highly of ourselves when we think that we can make it on our own. We'll look at this uh, next week from Romans 12, verse 4, uh, and it's all about depending on one another. Look at the next verse. For as 
in one body in Christ, members and the members of one another. In other words, even your very Christian identity, what it means to be a Christian is mean to be part of a community, is to be dependent. Your very identity cannot be known outside or independent of the other. Even when we see in creation, when God calls them male and female, there is a definitive relationship between male and female that is only known within one another. In other words, that in the original language, male means not female and female means not male. Do you see that? There, there is this way you only know what the other is when the other is present. That's something about being Christian. I only totally know what it means to be a Christian when I'm with other Christians. There's something of my spiritual identity that is lacking when I'm all by myself. This is really hard for us Americans to figure out, right? Any Western social idea is very hard to think, what do you mean? Like, I'm myself, by myself. Yeah, I'm saying grace invites you into community and it doesn't let you go. It doesn't let you go. Grace also does something else. It exposes our creatureliness. We think too highly of ourselves when we act like we weren't created. You ever felt that before? Like, I've just always been here. I'm figuring out everything for the first time. No one has ever explored what I'm exploring, right? That we're first, that we're all-powerful, that we're above reproach, that we're not made to reflect someone else. Genesis 1, 2 says, So God created man in his image, in the image of God he created them. Grace reminds us that we haven't always been, that we were created, not just myself, but our entire human race. You see how that conjures humility? <laughs> how that should develop something in me that is not in isolation, but is with my community and submissive to my Lord? Grace also exposes our motives. This is real uncomfortable. We see we think too highly of ourselves if we think that we make decisions without any selfish intent, without any bias, and without any self-serving motivation. Grace begins to peel back the layer. See, receiving grace, what does it do? It sheds light on the truth, which remains undetected otherwise. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, for the Word of God is living and active, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, you know, and brightly on that motive and just go, huh, maybe, maybe you did. See, when we, when we do something wrong, we at least have our motives that nobody really saw, so we can at least use that to justify our action. What the Scriptures do is it goes, well, let's talk about that for a second. You can't just hide behind that invisible sort of idea. It actually exposes light. It brings all things, the writer says, are laid bare. You can't hide. That's really uncomfortable. I like hiding. Hiding feels safe. The Scriptures expose us. See, grace reveals what's really going on in us, even in ways we don't discern ourselves. Grace also exposes our sin. When we um, think too highly of ourselves, we're not confessing foolishness. We're not confessing evil desires and sin regularly. In, in other words, I think, I think the Christian always has something to say in a moment of confession, right? The introspective follower of Jesus, like, I've always got content. If you're asking me how I've sinned lately, I've always got content I can offer to that conversation because grace is constantly exposing things in me. Being close to grace exposes because it's like walking in the light, John says, in 1 John 1, 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Like we go, I'm good. I'm not really struggling with anything right now. Nothing's really going on. That just tells me you're not very familiar with grace because grace exposes all of these things. Grace reminds us that sin is within us. Do you see how grace begins to pull us out? We can't think too highly of ourselves. The more familiar, the more in need we realize we are of grace, we're not going to think too highly of ourselves. 
See, by definition, grace is unmerited love. And the more familiar we are with grace and the grace of God, the more unmerited we realize we are and the more undeserving. This protects us from thinking too highly of ourselves. See, the mind of the Christian never thinks of self without, in some way, thinking about myself. Grace is, or rather, sin is part of that story. Being created is part of that story. We're no longer bound by sin, nor are we defined by sin, but we are still haunted by sin every day, aren't we? To not think too highly of ourselves, we're constantly conversant in that aspect of our identity. Our existence is dependent on another It's beginning, it's continuance. Who I am is dependent on someone else, the God of the universe, being cool with that. And the person who forgets their need for grace is the person who thinks too highly of themselves. Grace protects us from this. Now, what Paul is not saying, because there should be something in you like brewing a little bit now, right? This is only part of the story. Grace is not telling us uh, something which is perhaps just as important as what, what Paul is telling us, rather. He's not saying, don't think about yourself at all. That's impossible. It's impossible. Part of the way that you are wired is to care for your own needs in a manner of speaking. Nor is he saying, don't think highly of yourself. That's not accurate. He's saying what? Don't think too highly of yourself. In other words, we should be careful to think, rather not to think too highly, but also not to think too lowly of ourselves. And grace protects you from that as well. He explains this a bit more in the next movement of the verse. Look at the the third movement of verse 3. Think, rather, with sober judgment. More literally, he says, think with sober thoughts about yourself. When we think soberly, we think accurately. We know this. When someone is drunk, their wits are numbed. Their ability to discern reality is completely skewed. Humility then is not self-deprecation. It's not self-despisement. Humility is not shame. Humility is biblical self-love, which we explored a couple of weeks ago from James, James 1. Biblical self-love is a rejection of same, shame, but a replacement of God as our central place of our affection. We esteem God most highly within our inner self. More to the point, when grace is the lens, we will also not esteem ourselves more than anyone else. And thinking Grace wields, I think, this power to protect us from thinking too highly and thinking too lowly. Grace is unmerited love. While grace protects us from pride by reminding us that we are undeserving, unmerited of grace, grace also protects us from shame, reminding us that God has eternal affection for you. It's both. Grace keeps you from thinking too lowly of yourself. Specifically, grace reassures you that God actually really loves you, like truly and really and actually. Not that was a cool verse growing up that maybe your parents told you, like, don't forget, God so loved the world and you're part of that. No, he knit you together in your mother's womb in such a way that he one day would destine you for glory, for joy, for peace and patience and kindness and goodness. Like he thought of you, Jesus prays before his crucifixion, would they know that you love them even as you love me? that you would share the affection of the Heavenly Father with the Eternal Son. It's that kind of love. And God's love is the core of who you are. In other words, in Christ, the truest thing about you, sister, the truest thing about you, brother, is that you're loved. So when you think about yourself, you are always at least thinking about that, that you are loved. Do you see how that protects you? 
Not from thinking too highly of yourself or too, too lowly of yourself. Who are you? You're loved. This is why after David messed up Bathsheba, they lose this child. They get another child named Solomon or Jedediah, right? That's his name. <laughs> Do you know what that name means? You know, beloved by God. It comes after sin. It comes after death and sacrifice and lament. He said, I love you. Not because you didn't mess up, but because you're mine. Three, fear not. That's who you are. Isaiah 43, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by, by name. You are mine because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And here he says, so he says, and I love you. He doesn't just say, well, you know I love you. Look at what I've done. He says it. Isaiah 43, verse 1 and 4. That's who you are. You're loved. It's sober to think of yourself as loved. It's not prideful. It's not arrogant. It's true. It's accurate. Not only so, but grace reassures us of God's forgiveness. See, we might forget sometimes that we're loved, especially when we've sinned or when we're in the midst of shame or a battle with our behavior of being foolish. We struggle to believe and trust that God loves. So grace also reminds you that you're forgiven. And the Heavenly Father is always ready to keep forgiving His children. He is delighted to forgive you. After talking about walking in the light, the Apostle John says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's forgiveness is based on his faithfulness and his just character. Think about that. I'm going to read that if we confess our sin, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sin. It's not if we confess our sin, he will therefore then find you as a sufficient candidate to receive his forgiveness. No. He's going to forgive you because he's faithful. He's going to forgive you because he's just. That means no matter what you've done, it hasn't changed God's character. Can I get an amen? No matter what you've done, it hasn't changed God's character. So the last time I checked, if his character doesn't change and that's the impetus for him to forgive you, it doesn't matter what you've done. He'll forgive you because he is faithful and he is just always. He doesn't change. And that, that means... <laughs> That if you expect forgiveness from God, that's actually not entitlement if you expect it based on his character. If you expect forgiveness based on your character, that's entitlement. But if you expect forgiveness because God is faithful and just, that's who you are. You are one who has been forgiven because of who he is. That's sober thinking. Not only so, we're not done yet. God's grace reassures us of God's righteousness. See, when God loves and forgives us, he's not ignoring, right? You know, like sometimes in relationship, you're like, I'm going to keep hanging out with this person, but I don't want to talk about fill in the blank. I want to not bring up this part of their story or this part of my story. In other words, we realize that the fidelity of the relationship is contingent upon not bringing up some stuff, right? We've got those relationships. And if you don't yet, you will. Or maybe someone has that relationship with you and you don't know it yet, but see, when God loves and forgives, he doesn't ignore. He's not loving you in spite of you. Through Christ, he is paying for your sin and then covering you in his righteousness. Think about that. 
God doesn't love you in spite of what you have done or because of who you are. God loves you because you're his. And out of love, he makes and remakes you in his very image. He doesn't just forgive and forget. He restores us and then clothes us in righteousness. It's not that he ignores your sin. He actually deals with your sin and then he looks at you through righteousness, the righteousness of his son. Zechariah had a vision of Joshua as the high priest. And the angel says this, Zechariah 4, verses 3 and 4, remove the filthy garments from him. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. He doesn't love you in spite of your unrighteousness. He loves you because he has placed his righteousness upon you. He's transformed you. This is true of all who belong to the God of the Bible. He removes our filthy rags of sin and puts on clothes of what he clean as healed, as righteous, as forgiven, as complete, as whole, that's not hubris. That's accurate. That's sober judgment. That's who you are. See, thinking about yourself as loved and forgiven and righteous, that's not prideful. It's thinking about yourself the way that God has taught you to think about yourself, not a lifelong project. That I wonder if every single day, the work of the Holy Spirit, His Word, and God's people is just trying to do that. How can I see myself and others the way that God sees them? And the way that God sees me? It's all about grace, isn't it? can't do that on our own. It protects you from thinking too highly of yourself. It protects you from thinking too lowly of yourself. Grace, in other words, gives you a true assessment of yourself. In other words... If you're not seeing yourself through the lens of grace, you are not seeing yourself rightly. And you cannot see your brothers and sisters rightly then. This is hard though, (laughs) isn't it? I mean, this is hard work. Seeing yourself through grace requires what? Faith. Or we might say humility is born out of the Christian imagination, conceiving of yourself through the gospel. That's how Paul finishes the verse. Look at the last portion of verse 3. He says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. See, we see ourselves with sober judgment, not too high with pride, not too low with shame. We see ourselves through the eyes of faith, through this Christian imagination, as we've called it. Seeing ourselves accurately then requires faith, doesn't it? Because there's a lot of messy stuff I see. If I don't have faith, I'm like, that seems like it's in the way. (laughs) This family story this sin that I keep going back to, this lack of integrity that keeps swallowing me whole, this greed that I see all around me and in me, like it requires faith, believing that God is sufficient for those needs, that that God can overwhelm those things. See, faith is about seeing through God's eyes. Faith is about seeing ourselves from his perspective. It's about cultivating that Christian imagination as God altering to each as our collective imagination is in peril in this cultural moment, he says, the key pathology of our time, which seduces all of us, is the reduction of our imagination so that we are too numbed, satiated, and co-opted to do serious imagination work. In other words, we think imagination is child's play. We deal with these things in real space, in real time. But what does Jesus teach us? That unless you come like a child whose eyes are wide open with imagination and faith, you can never come. You think too high of yourself. You think too low of yourself when you mature as an adult. He says, come be like a kid and see me, see yourself how I see you. 
Come trust me. Come look through my eyes. In other words, we don't think of ourselves as we should. We don't think with faith. Daily, we are told to think about ourselves without faith. Daily, we're invited, though, to see ourselves, I think, in two particular ways that right now are crippling your Christian imagination. There are two ways you are invited to look at yourself that I would just pray right now, Holy Spirit, crush in us. The first way we're taught to see ourselves is through the eyes of someone else. Sometimes they even tell you, this is how I see you and you should see yourself that way too. Whether we're dealing with pride or shame, we are routinely encouraged to see ourselves the way that other people see us. This is not simply a non-Christian way of cultivating self-knowledge. We're kind of the evangelical church in America has regularly perfected the art of using this kind of fear tactic to modify your behavior. Perhaps the most destructive way that this happens is when we're taught about our witness. We're encouraged to think about how would non-Christians look at Jesus if they saw you acting like that. If, if the world, so we're asked to look through the world's eyes and see our behavior. And if they don't see a good witness, then they won't believe in a good God. I remember when a leader in my church, after I had asked forgiveness and confessed sin in the pulpit, he wanted his son to know that his pastor was do that again because his son was in the audience that day. And he wanted his son to know that his pastor was honorable. That day I was asked to look through the eyes of a child, kid in our congregation, and to say, you're going to mess up Jesus for him if you confess your sin. Few of us perhaps have a story that that acutely was taught to us. But all of us believe often that I better see myself through the eyes of someone else so I don't mess up my witness. So I don't make Jesus look bad. Can I just tell you something? You can't make Jesus look bad. You can't. It's impossible. It's impossible. His character is not dependent upon your behavior. His beauty is not dependent upon yours. Isn't that good news? How, how arrogant or too high must we think of ourselves to just go, in these 70 years I got on earth, I'm going to mess up eternity. You're not. God is bigger than that. God is more beautiful than that. He is more powerful than that. Thanks be to God. That's fear. And perfect love is going to drive it out. See, seeing ourselves as other people see us does not protect us from shame and pride. It nurtures them. This is not faith. This is fear. Maybe it's not a parishioner at a church. Maybe it's your boss and you constantly, whenever she or he sends you an email, you're thinking about, how do they see me? How do they see me? Am I worthy? Am I valuable? Or a spouse who you live in fear because you want to keep them happy. You want to make sure that they see you and you think about how do they see me? How do they see me? How do they see me? This is prevalent all over our world. We're being, we're being discipled in this way regularly to see ourselves the way that other people see us. And secondly, we're also told to see ourselves through ourselves. And this one is crazy. Can I just, I don't know, that sounds spiritual, but this is crazy. Usually this involves some sort of self, at first blush, I think this seems a lot like grace. 
This seems a lot like the love of God, but grace is fundamentally different than our modern view of self-esteem. Grace is based on meaning, love, and power that comes from outside of us, not from inside of us. Modern thought says, look within to figure out who you are. But as New York Times columnist David Brooks, he wrote recently in his article, How to Find Out Who You Are, he says that the most, or rather the worst advice you can give someone trying to find themselves is to look within, because that's not how you're made. You're not made to find meaning and love and power from within you. It is something that can only come from outside of you. As if every layer of your personhood is socially informed and at some level you're going to get down to the center that is the pure and true you. It doesn't happen. Even that idea of doing that is a social idea that I believe I'm supposed to do in order to find myself. That came from where? Outside of me. See, the, 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 the actual modern gospel contradicts itself. Don't listen to anybody. Where did that come from? Someone else, but I'm not going to listen to anybody. That literally is listening to someone. See, grace, though, is an objective value outside of us. It's about facts and faith, not just feelings. Living by our feelings alone is also about fear. Fear that you won't live out your true and authentic self, that you define free from any culture, from any religion, is that you're a person. But that's what faith is. See, fear is that you'll be shaped into someone else's mold. But faith actually says, isn't that such good news? You are being shaped into someone else's mold. That someone else is in charge of this, not you. That someone else created you to reflect him, but not to crush you, not to stifle your personhood, but to free you, to be gracious to you. See, grace tells us the truth. You are deeply sinful, but you are deeply loved. By grace, we're able to think rightly about ourselves only through faith. Or another way to put it is that the gospel is not about you believing in yourself. The God believing and trusting in the one who loves you. See, like seeing ourselves through others, seeing ourselves through self is based on a kind of truth. We should care about what others think about us, but we shouldn't build our life on it. We should care how we feel about ourselves, what we think about ourselves, but we shouldn't begin there. See, we are social creatures meant to be sensitive and connected to other people. Don't look around at your brothers and sisters and just say, I don't need you to figure out me. That's too far. That's thinking of yourself too highly. But also don't demean the way that the Spirit of God is speaking and building within you because he's the one who knit you together in your mother's womb and knit you back together again by his grace. But neither is sufficient to define you. Only seeing ourselves through others will lead to shame, and only seeing ourselves through ourselves will only lead to pride. Thinking too little or too high. But thinking about ourselves through grace gives you a sober mindset. That's faith. That's seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. That's how we think with this new mind. When we're faced with these things, we ask, who am I listening to? What am I believing? Whose eyes am I looking at myself through? See, a mind with the eyes... The mind of Christ has the eyes of Christ to see through grace. That's who you are. It's not too high. It's not too low. It's sober. It's through faith. Let's ask God for help. Heavenly Father, we love you because you loved us first. And we thank you that the way that you loved us in creating us was to reflect 
as your image bearers back to you the truth of your character, of who you are, that the self is not determined by a collection of humanity, the self is not determined by myself in isolation, it's determined by my creator God who loves me, forgives me, places his righteousness over me, and who keeps me forever by grace. I pray for my sisters and brothers. There's so many voices that we listen to through the week. Sometimes we don't even know that we're listening to them. Colleagues, maybe our competition, maybe just some general vague social media presence idea. But none of those know the truth and beauty that you've stamped upon our life to reflect as your image, as your image bearers. So help us to think rightly about ourselves. Not too high, not too low, but through faith with sober judgment. Because we know that when we walk in the light, we know that when we see ourselves rightly, we can not only give ourselves to ourselves, but we give ourselves to one another. We give ourselves to the calling that you have upon our lives. And ultimately, first and foremost, we give our lives to you in an act of worship. So help us to do that for your glory, our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?